Well, hello, everybody. We are going to be in Romans 5. Romans 5, so go ahead. Take out your Bibles. Take out your apps. Are there any other options? Scrolls? Romans chapter 5. You got a scroll back there? No? Romans 5. On the House Bible is page 942. Give you a second to turn there. Romans 5. We are going verse by verse through the book of Romans, and it has been a great joy so far. You know, one of the things God's done in my life over the last couple years is he has developed a true love of evangelism. Uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, and maybe you can uh, relate to this in some way. Kind of cold turkey evangelism has never been something that has just got me super excited, like going up to someone and starting a spiritual conversation, telling about Jesus. I was trained on that in college. I remember I was part of Campus Crusade at Indiana University, and, and Campus Crusade does a great job in going out and talking to people about faith. Uh, but it never had really been something that like, I leapt for and I was excited for. Until the last few years, God's really changed my heart. I look forward to times going out. Recently, I was at Daily Center with a friend of mine, and we were sharing the gospel. And I got in a conversation with a young man. He was a young Indian man. And he, uh, I asked him a question. I said, hey, can you tell me just about God? What do you believe to be true about God? And he went on and told me at length about his relationship with what he perceived to be God. He was out of the Hindu, Hindu tradition, and he believed in karma. And he went on telling me and teaching me about karma and, and how karma is so central to his understanding of how the world works and how, uh, how we get by spiritually. And the idea of karma, to put it simply, is basically you get what you deserve. If you put in good into the world, that good should come back to you. If you put in bad or evil or wickedness into the world, then bad or evil or wickedness will come back to you. It all kind of evens out. That's an oversimplification of it, but in a sense, that's the big picture of karma. He was sharing this with me, and then I said, can I pause you there for a second? He said, sure. I said, what do, you, do you think one man can pay another man's karma? And he thought about it for a second. He said, no, absolutely not, no. Each person has to pay their own karma. No one else can take anyone else's karma. And I said, let me tell you about a man who took our karma. Let me tell you about a man. His name was Jesus Christ. And the story of Christ is actually that he took the negative things that we actually earned. And as crazy as it sounds, that's the story of Christianity. He was almost offended at the idea that someone could stand in his place on his behalf. If you really consider the message that we preach from this pulpit every single week, the message of the gospel, it is offensive. It's offensive. And if you're not sure of why it's offensive, I want to make sure we get the, I want to make sure we, we offend you nice and early in this sermon. Are you ready? Here's why it's offensive. Because at the center of the gospel is a recognition that we cannot earn favor with God on our own. We're broken, we're sin-filled, we're sinners, and no matter how good we think we are, at the end of the day, it's not enough, and we haven't earned enough karma. That's not biblical language, that's Hindu language, but I'm going to steal it for just a moment. We haven't earned anything. That's the first part. But it's also not only offensive, it's also peculiar and perhaps foolish, because at the center of the Christian gospel is the narrative of Jesus Christ. And it's the great twist that nobody saw coming quite this way. The great twist that one man stood in our place underneath the wrath of God. And that we can have our sins forgiven, not because of anything we do on our own merit, but because of what he's done on our behalf. You know, when I share that with people, no matter what background, if they're not a a church person, someone who's familiar with the church, 
most people today are flabbergasted that that's actually what Christianity teaches. Did you know that? Most people, when I talk to them and I share, I get down to that baseline detail of what is the gospel, most people who are not familiar with the church are completely confused that that's what the Bible teaches? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. As we continue through Romans today, we come into a really fascinating passage. And I have to confess to you early on, this has been a difficult passage for me this week. Uh, not because I don't understand it, but just because there's so much going on in the passage. Finding a way to communicate this in a way that was organized and meaningful for you, <laughs> this has been tough this week. So stay with me. There's quite a bit of explanation I need to do as we go through this text to make it come alive. But I hope that it will hit you the same way as it hit me this week. The aim of this passage today... Paul has just got done explaining how a person is justified with God. He's justified by faith, by grace through faith. It's not by what we do, we get made right with God, by what Jesus does on our behalf. And so the obvious question that would come up to a reader is, wait, 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 how is it possible that we get what Jesus earned? I don't get it. I don't understand. How can someone else earn favor with God on our behalf? And in this text, he's answering that question. That's what he's answering. How is it possible that one man can stand in my place? And to answer it, he's going to draw a comparison between two men from the Bible. One of them is Jesus, and the other one is Adam. Adam is an Adam and Eve, the first man ever created. He's going to draw a comparison between these two men to teach us how it's possible that Jesus can earn something on our behalf. The big idea is this. The text is broken into two, two sections. The big idea is this. One man's sin brought separation... Another man's fix brought reconciliation. I made it rhyme so you can remember it, okay? One man's sin brought separation. Another man's fix brought reconciliation. Let's start with the first half. One man's sin brought separation. Verses 12 to 14. Romans chapter 5, page 942. Therefore, <clears throat> just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, at the very end of that, he says, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. In other words, Adam is a foreshadow. He's a... He's an analogy, in a sense, of the one who was to come. That's Jesus. So he's comparing these two men. That passage starts off by reminding us of the reality of death. Now, death is inserted into this passage as evidence. That's what he's using, this evidence to make his point. He says, every person experiences death. There's only two people in all history who haven't experienced death. Elijah and Enoch, two Old Testament stories, wonderful stories. You should read them sometime. Other than those two, everyone's died. Even Jesus, he died. He defeated it, but he died too. Everyone's died. This is the human story. And the reason he's going to use it as evidence is because it's fixed evidence. Everybody knows that everybody dies. It looms over the horizon of every one of us. Recently, I read a tradition, uh, not tradition, I read a story that the uber wealthy in America and around the world are beginning to have their bodies cryogenically frozen in the hope that one day technology will be invented to bring them back to life. 
newsflash, there's a way cheaper way to beat death, okay? There's a way cheaper way to beat death, and it's not by having your body frozen, it's by trusting in Jesus Christ. Just got to get to them, if only I can have that opportunity to share, right? But death looms for us all. Biblically, death is not a mystery. He brings us into that in the very beginning of this passage. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sin. He's going back to the story of where death came from. This is really important. Death is not the natural way of things. If you take an evolutionist history of the world, then death is just an assumed normalcy within the world that we live in. But that is not the reality. Death was not the original way things were created. God created a world without death. Adam lived originally without death. His was to be a life of harmony with God. Then when he says the very beginning, sin entered through one man, he's going back to Adam in the garden through one man. And he's looking at that story, he's saying, before sin came in the world, Adam and Eve were to live with God in such a way that they were in relationship with him, and they loved him, they worshipped him, and they would have reigned in life. They would have had dominion, and in a way, they were like a king and a queen. Now, God was the ultimate king. He was the one who was ultimately in charge, but Adam and Eve had dominion to exercise authority, to care for God's creation, to... To, to lead and to oversee all of God's creation. But, you know the story. They chose to become their own kings. Whenever you make your own law, you become your own king. And they chose to become their own kings by rejecting God's law to not eat from a certain tree. Now, why that law? Why did God make that law? God could have made any law. The law itself didn't matter. It didn't matter what it was that God told them not to do. All that mattered was that there was some way for Adam to keep in check that he was not the final king. God was the king. And he said, don't eat from this tree. And Adam chose to eat from the tree. And sin entered into the world. Now, stay on there for a moment. I'm going to take a quick side note, all right? Adam and Eve both sinned. Eve ate the fruit, then gave it to Adam, and then Adam ate. And then he sinned as well. Yet, Romans 5 says... Adam sinned. Men, you have a spiritual authority in your family to lead and protect and take care and to shepherd your families. Men and women are created equal within the family of God, equal image bearers of God. And yet, men, in the context of the family, you have leadership responsibilities. Eve is not held responsible for bringing sin into the world. Adam is. There are many other passages. In fact, I'm working on a very large document right now that's going to help us walk through that idea. But today in this passage, I need you to see that, men. And I want to call you up to leadership in your home. You ought to be leading worship in your home, leading prayer in your home, taking care and protecting and leading your family. Equal, equal image bearers with the wives and the women that are in your life. And yet you have a particular responsibility. And we see that in this text right here. Adam was held responsible. Back to the text. Just as sin came to the world through one man, death through sin. Death entered through sin. Adam sins, and then all of a sudden, death is part of the story. God had told Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will die. That if you eat of this, you will die. And then what happened? He died. Years went by, and death became a part of his story. Eventually, he died. Whenever you read of death in the Bible, it's referring to one of two different kinds of deaths. Either it's referring to a physical death which is we die, 
or it's referring to a spiritual death. Spiritual death is when you have separation from God. It's when you're not reconciled to God. It's when you're living in a disharmony with God and it's not right and there's a brokenness in your life. Both of those deaths happened when Adam ate the fruit. He experienced a separation from God that was unlike any he had ever seen or experienced before. And it was broken. It wasn't the glory and the reigning in life that he once had, but now his story was one of brokenness and hardship and toil and pain. It was different. Spiritual death and physical death came later. Adam chose to be his own king and ushered in an age of death. And then death spread to all men because all men sinned. Part three of this is that not only did Adam sin and not only did he bring in death to himself, but he brought in death to all humanity. Now, what this means is that sin is like a virus. Sin, we inherit sin from our parents. It comes right through the bloodline, right from Adam all the way down. Sin comes, it's part of the DNA, part of now what it means to be born into the human story. Every person is born in the likeness of Adam, sinners. Now, there's bad theology that says this. Some people say, well, what it means to be born after Adam is that you just have a proclivity for sin. It just means that you have a, an ability to choose sin, but you also have the ability to not choose sin. No, that's not what this says. Romans 5 says, if you're born after Adam, so raise your hand if you're born after Adam. Okay, everyone's been born after Adam, chronologically after Adam, right? Okay, if you're born after Adam, you don't have the ability not to sin. It's, it's, it's ingrained as part of your DNA. It's part of your story. You're part of Adam's bloodline. You cannot not sin. You're in sin if you're in Adam. Now it gets really confusing. You ready for this? Okay. Verse 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. What's he saying? He gets his point across. Remember what he's trying to say. He's trying to explain how Jesus can stand in our place. He says, look, check this out. Adam sinned and died. The penalty for his sin was death. The law, how, that came many, many years and generations later, right? And now there's a written law from Moses, the Ten Commandments, what humans ought to do and not do. And now you can be aware of your sin. But all these people in the middle, they all lived without a written law. Now, there's other ways they could have known God's will, but there was no written law to actually compare their lives to and know, okay, I'm sinning right now. I shouldn't be coveting my neighbor's possessions because that's a sin. So this text says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. For all these people right here, their own sin was not being counted towards them. And yet, they all experienced the penalty of sin, which is death. So why are these people being held accountable for sins that they haven't actually committed? It's because they have a representative before God, and they're carrying Adam's guilt. Here's what I'm saying. What this text argues is that every single person who has ever been born after Adam stands before a holy God with Adam as their representative. He is a type of Christ. He is a different representative. And if you stand in Adam, you carry his sin. You carry his penalty, which is death. Even if you've never had a written law to tell you that you're sinning on your own. We're all in Adam. 
Now, this is really, really critical. Uh, if you're in Adam, you are guilty of sin. There's two kinds of sin in this world. There's actual sin and there's original sin. You may have heard of that term before. Actual sin is what you do. It's when you look at God's command and you behave like Adam behaved and you disregard God, make yourself your own king, make your own laws, and then you go on and you sin. That's actual sin. We're all guilty of that too. We've inherited sinful natures and we've sinned. Original sin is not the first time a baby sins. <laughs> That's not what it means. Original sin in the world of theology is what Adam did. It's what Adam did. And we carry the guilt of Adam's original sin. And God will hold us accountable for Adam's sin. Now, if you've heard what I just said, my guess is you're squirming in your chair a little bit. And probably what's coming up is something like this. That's not fair. Why should I be held accountable for Adam's sin? Why, why, I don't want someone else standing in my place. Can you hear that? Can you already hear why this is going the wrong way? I don't want someone else standing in my place. I, I have a better economy, God. Here's how God's economy should work. We should, all, we should all stand before God on our own, and we should all be held accountable for our own sin. And then we get the judgment that we deserve. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to say that. Because the scriptures reveal that if that were the case, if we were to stand before God on our own with no representative before us, it would not go well for us as a result of the actual fallen world we live in. Every single person has a representative. You're either under Adam's curse or you're in Christ. And Christ is the truer and greater Adam. See, Christ is a representative just like Adam. He can stand in your place, but rather than offering you condemnation, Jesus can stand in your place and offer you full forgiveness for all of your sin. So that when you stand before a holy God, another one stands in your place, Jesus. And then when God looks at you, when, the God, looks at, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus in your behalf, in your place. He sees his sin he sees your sin put on Jesus' shoulders and Jesus sacrificed enough to cover all of your sins that you could ever commit. And he becomes your new representative head. That's what he's saying. So remember the question he's trying to answer. How is it possible that one man can stand in my place? He says, here's the evidence, death. The reason death is here is because a different man once stood in your place, Adam. But if you put your faith in Jesus, now Jesus can stand in your place. And now what he does is he demonstrates to us how Jesus is so much greater than Adam. It's a totally different thing. One man's sin caused separation. Another man's fix brings reconciliation. Jesus brings reconciliation. Look at what he says in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. Now, just to read that verse. What he's saying there is almost humorous. He's going to go into this whole section here comparing Adam to Jesus and he, he starts it by saying, the free gift of Jesus is nothing like the trespass, right? He's saying it's not even worth comparing. The goodness and the greatness and the love of Jesus is in a whole other stratosphere compared to the, the condemnation of Adam. For the sake of comparison, let's just compare them right now so you can see. But they're not even worth comparing. They're not worth comparing in a few ways. First of all, the grace of Jesus abounds for many. The grace of Jesus abounds for many. Here's what that means. What Jesus offers you not only covers what Adam has done, but it covers 
what you've done individually as well. It doesn't only cover original sin, but it covers your actual sin as well. Verses 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. He says in verse 15 and 16 that it brought many justification. Look at verse 16 with me again. The, uh, where am I? Verse the free gift following many trespasses, verse 16, brought justification. When he says many trespasses, he's referring to everybody. It's not just Adam's sin. It's all of our sin. Your sin, my sin, all of our sin. The free gift covers it all. And it says that his grace abounds to us. That abounding language is, is kind of like an overflowing, think of a gushing river, right? This river of grace that just pours incessantly into your life. It abounds to the point that it's overflowing. It's more than enough to bring any sin or brokenness that you could ever dream of bringing before a holy God. His grace is more than enough to cover even that. And let me tell you, that's really good news for sinners like us. Because every single one of us, if we take the time to live reflective, contemplative lives, bring a whole lot of sin before a holy God. We bring sin before a holy God. And Jesus hanging on the cross looks down on whatever your story and whatever your rebellion to God is, and he says, I've paid it all. It's all taken care of. There's nothing you can bring for me that I did not pay for in full. Now, when I talk about sin, the feeling I get when I speak with a lot of people about sin as a pastor is that most people have a very degraded view and understanding of what sin is. Sin has kind of become a churchy word where it doesn't feel very relevant and we don't cringe over sin. I was sharing with the team this morning, there's a verse that's been really meaningful to, to me from Psalm 119. I've been working through Psalm 119 in my own devotion life. In Psalm 119 it says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Can you say that? Don't, you know, not, not, not can you say it out loud right now. Can you say that in your heart of hearts? Right, I'll say it again. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Do you hate sin? Or do you just put up with it? And it's just the way it is, so you're fine. Most of us think of sin in the latter way. Most of us think of sin, it's no biggie. It's just me, right? It's just my life. I'm a sinner. I do what I do. It's just my problem. But hey, right, what's the big deal? It's not causing much havoc out there in the world, so it's not that big of a deal. I know somewhere in the Bible it's probably a big deal, but I don't care about it all that much. To say that is to miss everything that's being communicated to us. Let me read to you, verse 20 and 21. Now, the law came to increase the trespass. The reason God gave us his word, the reason he gave the word is so that the depth of our sin would be revealed, so that we would all look at it and go, God, that's what you desire of my life? I'm nowhere close. But where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. 
See, grace abounds all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness. Here's what he's saying. Sin is like a, okay, in Chicago, we have Lake Michigan over here. And every once in a while, over there, not over there, over there is Lake Michigan. And every once in a while, these lake effect storms come, come over the area. Last night was a terrible storm. You guys got, you saw the snow coming, you saw the wind coming. And when a lake effect storm goes over a highway, you've seen these car crashes that can happen. They can be dozens upon dozens of cars that just start colliding into each other. I read a story a while ago, it was 300 cars got in a, a car pile up because of a lake effect storm off of Lake Michigan. Now think about that first guy for a moment. He's in the front of the, you know, he's the very first one who got in the car accident. You've all been driving in a situation like that before, I'm sure. Snow's coming, it's a little icy, you're trying to drive and you clip an edge maybe and you spin out and he gets in an accident. Now, in a, the middle of a major storm, you can't see more than 30 feet around you. And you probably can't even hear. I mean, snow muffles a lot of the noise. Someone could be screaming 50 feet away from you. You can barely hear it because of the snow. But if you're that front guy, you look around, you've gotten in a car accident, you're bummed, and you look back, there are four or five cars you can see that have all plowed into each other because of your mistake. Now, in your mind, that's the extent of the damage. It seems fairly isolated. What you don't know is that continuing over a long period of time, over a long stretch of highway, are hundreds of cars that are crashing one into another because a result of your skidding on ice and bumping into another person. And the only way you can actually tell it is once the storm's cleared and you get the helicopter out who's got the bird's eye view and they look over the whole thing and they see the extent of the damage, 300 cars ranging nearly over a mile that got into a wreck because one man spun out on the ice. That's how sin is. See, we think our sin is just confined to what's going on in our own little private quarters, right? I get in an argument with somebody, I'm angry with somebody, and I, okay, I, I broke God's word, and I was, I was angry with that person, and it really, it's just, it's just in our household, so it doesn't extend much beyond that. Meanwhile, God's looking down with the helicopter, the bird's eye view. He sees how every life and every emotion and everything that feeds into our life and every injustice and everything that's ever been said all forms each person. And then we bump into each other in a thousand different ways. And sin pervades in society. See, your private sin has effects over the entire society around you. It's not just about you. That's why hot indignation seized the psalmist because of the wicked who forsake the law. Because when we forsake God's law, it destroys society around us. And other people get hurt as a result. And in the midst of that chaos and carnage, the grace of Christ abounds all the more. I'm trying to lift up sin before you. And I want you to get to a place where you can't stand it. I can't stand that I would bring that before a holy God. And then recognize that you do bring it before a holy God. And then recognize that God loves you all the more. Because where your sin increased, grace abounded more. He gives you more than enough. It overflows into your life. There's nothing you can bring to Christ that he cannot forgive. If you're in this room right now and you're wondering if God can forgive you for what you've done, the answer is yes. A thousand times over, it's yes, 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 look to Jesus on the cross where his blood was shed. He forgives you. 
You've got to trust him by faith. And then he becomes your new representative before a holy God. Not you. Not you. Jesus. The second way he's different than Adam is that in Christ, you begin to reign in life. You reign in life. If you were listening closely, you heard me talk about that language when I was referring to what Adam did in the garden. He was reigning in life. When you place your faith in Christ and he becomes your new representative head, you actually begin to have restored to you what was Adam's rightfully in the garden and you begin to reign in life. Verse 17, let's read this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, here it is, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now what is that saying? Here we see that word reigning again, like a king reigns. Until you accept Christ, death and all of its consequences reigns, physical and spiritual. Death reigns over your life, and you are separated from God. But once you place your faith in Christ, the abundance and the goodness and the fullness of God begins to restore in you what Adam had originally, that place of walking with God in intimacy, of knowing and loving his word, of having his law restored to you and having it planted in your heart. That's the, old, that's the Old Testament promises of what would happen when Jesus came back. The word would be written on your heart and you walk in this unity with God where he's enough and you point the world towards God and, and you're having dominion, not as the chief king, God's the chief king, but being entrusted as stewards to bring about God's kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. See, this is why Steve in that video, our associate pastor up north, this is why he was talking about the work that MLK did. Because in God's, God's kingdom, when Christians filled by the Holy Spirit are reigning in life, both in the future, yes, that means eternity, but it also means now. When you're reigning in life, you bring the kingdom with you wherever you go and you step into broken places. Just like MLK did. We step into broken places and I got, I got to say something. The work that MLK started through the civil rights movement rooted in the word of God. Why was he doing that? Well, it's really clear because the word of God is fundamentally clear. Every human bear, being bears the image of God. That's called the Imago Dei. And the reason that every human being, no matter your race, your color, your ethnicity, no matter your background, no matter what country you're from, how much money you have or don't have, every person is worthy of equal dignity, respect, and love is because of the Bible, because they're made in the image of God. A little side note here for you. If, you if, if there's someone out there who's living a non-biblical worldview and you take the Bible out, right, and all you have is a secular mindset, you can't get the equality of all men from a secular mindset. You can't get it. There's nowhere to root it in. You can say you believe in it, but you're just stealing from the Bible. If you're a secularist, what you ultimately believe in is the strong eat the weak. It's evolution. That's all there is. That's the history of why we're here. It's how we got here. It's how society is arranged the way it is. It's the strong eat the weak. And if you say as a secularist, I believe in the equality of all people, then you are stealing from the Bible because that is God's terminology. He's the one that made us in the Imago Dei. He's the one that planted the church to fight for the equality of all people. That's one of the things that the church does. They step into broken places 
And I gotta tell you, church, in this city, we need to take a crash course on the history of the civil rights movement and the continuation of what continues to happen in our own city. If you never learned much about that, buy some books. There's a million of them you can read on the topic about our own city. The work is not done. It's not done. It's why we do some of the stuff we do as a church. We step into broken places and we continue to restore the kingdom of God through us. God uses us. This is what it means to reign in life. It means to be made right with God, to experience the fullness of God, but then not to stay in a holy huddle in a safe place and just have cowardice in the public sphere. We're called to have courage where you step into broken places. This Sunday is also Pro-Life Sunday across the nation. I'm going to speak a little bit about this again next week, more than likely. But this week across the nation, churches are celebrating Pro-Life Sunday, where the church steps into the brokenness of the child in the womb who doesn't have a voice. Right now, and about six months ago, I preached a message from this pulpit about the vulnerability and the life in the womb that begins at conception. If you haven't listened to that, I highly encourage you to go back to it. If what I'm sharing right now is offensive or you don't understand it, I want you to know there is biblical understanding for why Christians believe what they do about the life in the womb, right? And the reason is because God says that it's precious and that he's weaving it together and that it is life and that it's not healthcare to take away a life, but it's actually taking a life. Christians step into this. This is what it means to reign in life. It means that you, you, you love God, you walk with God, you've been seared by God with the Holy Spirit, and God goes before you and represents you, and then you step in and expand the kingdom of God wherever you go. Like I said this last Sunday, we cannot live dualistic lives, pretending like we're not called to step into broken places. That's not Christianity, that's nothing. That's what Christians do. We step into broken places. We speak for the vulnerable, not for the sake of social justice, but for the sake of the king who has us here reigning in life now. We reign in life. This can mean so many things for so many different people. Everybody has a mission field, wherever you are. We can't just turn a blind eye to the evils around us. We must step into them. And the world takes notice of this stuff. And can I just tell you, Jesus wins in the end, right? He wins. That's the end of the story. Every evil law will be overturned, period, done. It's done. It's going to happen, so we're just fighting for it. We're, we're working our way forward towards what's going to happen. In your job, this could look like your vocation and what you do. Take two teachers, right? Let's take two teachers for a second. You've got a non-Christian teacher and a Christian teacher, and they go to school. They go to school, and they're, they have the same job. They've got the same training. They've got the same kids they're trying to serve, the same rules of how they can behave in the classroom. It's all the same stuff, two people. But one of them is fundamentally different. The Christian is filled by the Holy Spirit. They're reigning in life. They're expanding God's kingdom wherever they go. They've begun that day by asking God, God, what would you have me do today? How do I behave differently than my non-Christian co-workers in a way that expands the kingdom of God through the way I love people, speak about you, and point everyone towards you? That's what Christians do. We don't just look like everybody else. We don't just do the exact same job that everyone else does. We bring every part of our life, including our vocation, which is the most amount of hours you spend a week, of course, before God, and you say, God, how do I lead this meeting today to the glory of God? How do I forgive that person to the glory of God? How do I care for these children to the glory of God? And it will look different. But Christian, this is what it means to reign in life. 
if you have a new representative head, it's not so you can sit in cowardice behind the walls of the church. It's so that you can live in courage, knowing that he goes before you and you step into broken places as one expanding the kingdom of God. Let me close. This whole text is searing in our hearts the reality that we have been justified by faith. It's not our own doing so that no one can boast. You're not going to get to heaven and boast in anything you've done. You're going to get to heaven and boast in Jesus and everything he's done on your behalf. Start that boasting now. Let that be the thing which you are most known for. You reign in life. You have one who has gone before you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, we, we, we pray over everything that was just shared here, over your word. God, some of the stuff in that passage is very technical, but God, I pray that it will be far more than technical. I pray that this would change our heart. I pray that you would send us, God. We want to be bold, courageous Christians who step into broken places in ways that the world takes notice, in ways that point the world towards Jesus, that point people towards what our motivation is. We're not just motivated by the same things the world is. We're motivated by our king because we worship you. Form that in us, please. God, would you make us a church? I'm asking for this, God. I'm asking for something bold. You tell us to ask. And you say we don't have because we don't ask big, bold prayers. And so I'm asking you, God, would you make us a church so on mission that our neighbors and our neighborhoods take notice? And no matter what notice they take, if they're offended, let them be offended. That's fine. If they're curious, let them come and learn. That's great. But let them at least take notice that we're different, God, please. They took notice of the early church. And just a handful of people changed the world. I pray, God, that you'd allow us to be a part of what's changing here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand and sing with us?
Was blind. 